on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it is America's Talk Radio Show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined by Oliver Camacho and Weston Williams. All right, this week, we go inside the huddle with Kyle Kettleson. The heartthrob American-based baritone is currently in Austria, and we wanted to ask him what's going on with the lockdown and why are they still rehearsing? But his conversation with Oliver ended up covering so much more. Plus, two-minute drill. Look, friends of the OBS are achieving major accomplishments, like getting Grammy nominations and winning the Marian Anderson Vocal Award. If you want to take the next step in your career, better get in touch. Yeah, we're talking to you, Yannick. <laughs> if you're on TDO with us, you want to make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher. You can even just favorite the show on Apple Podcasts. And of course, make sure you email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. You drop us a line, you get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin. Man, that's a lot of swag. Oliver Camacho's <laughs> repping the lapel pin right there. It's been there the whole time, folks. It's like one of those <laughs> subtle advertisements for this call to action. We've been prop prepping you for a year to hear about George's new scheme to get you to engage with us. It's been there all along, baby. And if you play our episode backwards, you can hear us talking about Satan, too. It's pretty great. That's Weston Williams. There he is. Yeah, I, here I am. I don't have my button on me at the moment. It's uh, attached to my laptop bag currently. But one of these days, I'm going to write in to uh, operaboxscore at gmail.com and get one. another one. Yeah. <laughs> Weston's got the roll tied hound. You'll have to flag. disguise your name. You have to be like Weston Billiams or something. <laughs> <laughs> Easton uh, uh, Won'ts, Won'tums. Is Won't the opposite of Will? Yes, it is. Y'all know that I'm a huge diehard Michigan Wolverines fan. You may also know that Michigan plays its final game of the regular season every year against the hated Ohio State Buckeyes. Uh, Michigan (laughs) has not won this game in 10 years. But last Saturday, the Saturday after Thanksgiving, finally a 42-27 victory over the Buckeyes. If you're watching on TDO, you can see right here, baby, you got maize and blue right here. You got Michigan. Michigan. Wait, wait, what's says, what's under? What does it say under Michigan, George? Oh, it, it's Michigan uh, Gilbert and Sullivan Society. <laughs> um. Nerd. <laughs> All right, let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. What that means for our production is that this production we've been working on a month now. I mean, it's an extremely, it's a very Kosky production of Don Giovanni, and it's very, very physical, um, very specialized work. And they're really, and it, it being Vienna and Don Giovanni, Mozart, they're, um, Bogdan, the, uh, the intendant here is very, very dedicated. Uh, uh, he's um, determined to make it work. So as it stands, he has already made a deal. Like the day that we found out about the lockdown, he had already made a deal by 1230 in the afternoon with Austrian National Television Network to have our opening live stream. So it'll be live streamed on Austrian National Television and it'll also be streamed worldwide on um, Wiener Staatsoper's uh, uh, streaming service. And that is the 5th of December. 
Sorry, but I'm eating chips because I had one of those days where just been nonstop, and the only thing I can put in my mouth is something crunchy and loud, perfect for a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it really let it wash over yeah. you. Um, so over the Thanksgiving weekend, I was able to get in touch with Kyle Kettleson, and he was super generous with his time. We actually have such a long interview, I had to edit some of it out. Um, one of the things that got edited was one of the main reasons why I wanted to talk to him, uh, which is what's going on in Austria. So at the top of the show, you heard a little bit of, of that conversation. But in short, uh, they are a month into rehearsing the brand new Berikowski production of Don Giovanni at Wiener Staatsoper. And the intendant, Bogdan Rostich, seems to be uh, in negotiations with Alexander Schallenberg, the chancellor of Austria, so that uh, the lockdown will end <laughs> in time for um, the run of Don Giovanni. Now That is called to... clout. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> they're going to miss um, the first three performances that are scheduled, but the first scheduled performance was going to be the live stream, which is actually going to happen just without an audience. Mm. So that happens, I think, on December 5th and will be streamed on the Wiener Staatsoper streaming platform. So we can see it. And uh, in this production, Kyle Kettleson, who is a renowned Leporello, has been singing Leporello like his whole life, is going Does to Does he have singing. that on his LinkedIn profile? Renowned Leporello? <laughs> <laughs> uh, he will be singing the role of Don Giovanni. But I wanted to talk to him about Leporello, and we begin the conversation, I think, talking about Leporello, where we are going to edit into it. Uh, I remember his Leporello from 2014, which he did here in Chicago in the Robert Falls production at Lyric Opera, which starred Ana Maria Martinez and Marina Rebecca and Marius Kvitschen. Man, was he so good in that show. And it was one of those performances where I felt like, oh, I am seeing a complete artist. Like this guy is so embodied in the role. He really has the physical thing timed out so well where it just feels so natural. Like he's responding to what's happening on stage. You know, sometimes you go see a show and somebody could drop like one of their costume parts and it's on the ground and like nobody touches it because it's like not in their blocking to like touch it. Like that would never happen with Kyle oh, Kettleson. Yes. Kyle Kettleson's type person like sees everything that's happening on stage and like just knows how to do everything in character and to time everything. He just looks so fantastic. And he sounds like a million bucks. Uh, so I wanted to talk to him about singing Leporello, but we ended up surprisingly talking about building a family as an opera singer, which is one of our favorite topics. And also a surprise topic I wasn't expecting, how to deal with acid reflux. <laughs> we actually <laughs> talked about it for like 10 minutes. <laughs> uh, so we're going to get into this interview right now. Warning, it was early for me um, when we recorded this, so I'm very puffy. So this is how I normally look in real life, but in the morning, I'm just... <laughs> it's why it's a podcast, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> uh, before we go into this, we're going to... Oh, I have to tell you that he was on Conan O'Brien's podcast recently, and we're going to hear a little bit of that at the end of the show. But we're going to begin with a little sample of Kyle singing with St. Louis Symphony in 2009 from Berlioz's Damnation of Faust. Uh, this is uh, Une Puisse Gentille. Une puisse gentille, chez un prince logère, 
Comme sa propre fille, le brave homme l'aimait. Et l'histoire à la sûre, par son tailleur, un jour, lui fit prendre mesure pour la vie de corps. De joie, dès qu'il se vit parler, homme de l'or de soie et de croix décorée, qui veut de province ses frères et ses sœurs, qui par ordre du prince doit être grand seigneur. Yeah, I've sung Leporello like it's literally like 170 performances, 180 performances of Leporello. I've done maybe 30 productions, 35 productions. I can't, I've lost track, um, but it's right around there. And, you know, for years, I didn't want to approach Giovanni. Um, I had too much uh, respect for the role to think that I could do it any, anywhere nearly as well as I it should be done. Um, I first sang Giovanni at grad school in English, at Indiana University in English in 1997, I think. And it was very difficult. Um, and then I didn't touch it for another nine years. And that's, that was in Minnesota Opera in 2006. And it was off the heels, on the heels of uh, the greatest vocal crisis of my career, which was mm. caused by a reflux. It was before I had acid reflux under control and my voice basically disappeared. I lost my resonance, I lost my range. And then I was asked to do, not asked, but I was already contracted to do John Giovanni just a few months after I had this huge, huge event in my vocal life, so to speak. And so I sang that thing horribly. I didn't, I couldn't cover anything. I couldn't, I couldn't soften any of the high notes. Um, I had to ask the conductor to take uh, one of the arias down a half step so I could sing it. It was very, very difficult. And then, um, you know, I've just loved the character of Leporello so much. You have the yeah. tools by Da Ponte and Mozart to steal the show every night, if you can do it. And so I had quite a good success with that role. And, you know, it's funny because, um, so 06 was the last time I had, I've done it. So we're talking 15, almost 16 years, because it was January of 06. So almost 16 years. Um, and a couple of things happened during that time. One, I did a Leporello in Tokyo and it was in concert version. And I remember thinking after the show, and this is probably four years ago, wow, I, 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 sang, I sang that, I felt great about that vocally. Why, what was different about tonight? And then I of course realized, well, I'm not rolling around on the floor and doing somersaults and being beaten <laughs> in the sextet and running around. You know, I could actually just stand and deliver. And then it kind of flipped the switch in my head. Maybe Giovanni might be something that I could do. and. And I've always, I've fielded offers from companies asking me to do Giovanni and my agent has always brought it up to me. And I just kind of say, no, I'm not gonna do it. I'm not gonna do it, I'm not gonna do it. Um, Cause I've you know, I've worked with, uh, you know, Terville and Keenly Side and Finley and, you know, all these guys as the Giovanni. Um, 
and I've seen what they've done. And I've, and I've often thought I can't do that well enough to my, for my um, satisfaction. But so a couple things happened that Tokyo gig was like the, the, a switch had been flipped. And also, you know, the, my voice type, which is true bass baritone, a bass with high notes, the, my voice has changed. I'm 50 now. And so, um, you suddenly things are a whole lot easier to sing right now than they were. And it's kind of opened my eyes to doing much heavier repertoire. And then over, over COVID, there were a couple of things that were, that I did um, the, my first Kaspar and Freischutz in Munich, which is heavy. And then I had people coming out of the woodwork saying, what Wagnerian do you do? What, you know, what do you, I said, nothing, nothing. I don't do, so now I'm kind of opening my eyes to that. Maybe a Dutchman or maybe a Rheingold. Um, um, Mima? No, what's his name? The one-eyed man. Votan. There you go. That'd be oh. the only Votan that I could probably do oh, right okay. now. Okay, interesting. Um, wait, you you touched on so many things right now, and I yeah, right. Wind it back. Um, it's the it's the Lagavulin that, yeah. that caused it. It's because I I always try to make this show um, about things that people can really relate to and see themselves in somebody who's had a successful career as you. You had reflux. Um, what were the symptoms? What was it like to not know? And what was the um, you know, the therapy. So, you know, I think back to well before I, I had the blowout, I had the, the first time I remember it being, a, it, it affecting my singing and I didn't know it was reflux was when I was singing a high note and it would, so on a high note, instead of going, ah, it would, go, ah, it would just break up a little bit. And I thought, what is, why is it doing that? That was reflux. Um, so the chords were not meeting all the way because there were some, they weren't clean. They weren't all the probably inflamed, probably irritated, inflamed. You know, when you have, um, uh, one of the strongest acids known to man wash over your chords and your pharynx and your larynx, mm-hmm. ain't that great for singing. Whereas most people, you know, non-singers doesn't bother them a bit if they have a little yeah. bit of rap to their voice that has character, right? Yeah. But for us, you know, elite users of this thing, these two flaps of skin down here, we notice every little bit. And so that was like the canary in the coal mine for me. Mm-hmm. And I kind of, I took some some proton pump inhibitors, you know, your Nexium, Prilus, like that sort of thing in a, in a, a lesser um, dose at first. And then... I remember from, from basketball, because I played basketball, I had to stop 10 years ago, but I, I played for 21 years, just, you know, passionately um, at school, then at another school, and then into, like, whenever, wherever I would travel, I would find a basketball court there, and that was my, that was my um, exercise, and I tore ACL over here on my right side, and then I tore the ACL on my left side, and then I tore the ACL on my right side, well, the second ACL surgery I had, I gave myself enough time or as much time after the surgery as I did my first ACL surgery to start singing again. And I started singing. And basically this is 2005, December of 2005 is when I had the second ACL. And I started singing because I had a gig coming up and I wanted to start preparing again. I was up and walking and, and um, I, my voice, it hit a ceiling. I would, uh, and it would stop. 
oh, and it, and it was like, I didn't, I couldn't go through my passaggio and I couldn't go into the, um, my head voice. I couldn't cover anything. And it felt exactly like it felt, or it reminded me of very much of when I was 19 and had just started studying singing and didn't know how to do that stuff. Yeah. The difference was I know how to do it, but suddenly my voice, my body wasn't letting me, the, the ability was not there. And so, uh, you know, I just start wondering what's going on. And so I ended up seeing a, a, a great um, speech therapist named Brian Petty at University of Wisconsin Hospitals uh, in Madison, who's great, great, great. And he, I then saw Dr. Ford, who was a legend at University of Wisconsin. And so between the two of them, we kind of, you know, I, I did daily, um, for 18 months, I did daily exercises. And it took that long to get my voice back to feeling like it was anything. And I had, I had role debuts during that time. I mean, and house debuts. I did Figaro at Covent Garden during that time. I did Escamillo in, in, um, in uh, San Francisco at that time. And I didn't do them justice at all, you know. I didn't cancel anything for better or worse during that period. So anyway, you know, it, it's a, it's a period of life. And the more singers I speak to, the more have that experience, not exactly that experience, but they have an experience where they came to a, uh, a crisis in their vocal life and they thought, what else can I do? What is there? Can I, you know, if, if I can't be a singer, because, you know, singers are crazy, no matter, I mean, I consider myself a pretty sane singer, but there's still that little crazy corner of my brain that talks to me, you know, like, you'll never sing again, you'll never, you know, you're screwed, even, even if you want to have a cold, mm. you know, there's a little voice that says, you're never going to sing again, and you, <laughs> and you try and tamp it down and say, shut up, that's nuts, <laughs> and most of the time it's wrong, well, this, you know, it was pretty, it was pretty, um, desperate and so uh, it was a it was a down time for me you know mentally and I'm not a depressive type at all but I was oof, that was tough but it, it just, I clawed back out of it and got with a new, new teacher and was there my, something you had to change with your diet or when you well, ate or like when you slept or this type of stuff you know you well there's all that anymore, so, like... <laughs> well um <sighs> reflux kind of runs in my family my dad you know as long as I can remember he always was popping Tums. You know, this is before there were drugs for it. Yeah. Popping Tums and acids. You know, my sisters each have it. Um, one of my sisters, it she was she was um, inhaling it for years, and she she was so raspy and she 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 had a horrible raspy voice because and she ended up having her nasal passages bored. You know, mistakenly because uh, because of the symptoms she was having before they finally um, realized and it was diagnosed correctly as reflux. And my other sister, my older sister, has it as well. So it run, it's you know the force is strong with this family. Mm. So I had to I have to take the pills. I've continued to take the pills. Next him, I take the maximum dosage every single day. And also that's not enough. I can't just eat what I want when I want. I don't eat late um, after show almost never and if i ever do it's a very rare uh treat you know like have a little snack at a party or whatever you know yeah. uh, after an opera but um i i can't uh, you have I to can't avoid eat. things like pasta like white white starches and you know. well so the list you know the first it's it's shock to the system yeah. for anyone who enjoys life yeah. You know, the, the list is, okay, so likes first, pleasure. <laughs> yeah, you know, if you don't, you're good, you're good. If you don't like to have fun, you're good. So, okay, alcohol, okay. Tomato products, you know, red wine, chocolate, 
um, any spicy food, you know, and these are like my list of the best things in life. So, but okay. So thankfully in the end, you know, there's more stuff in between, but in the end, it's about moderation, just like a lot of other things in life. It's about moderation. I don't eat late. I cut off at a certain time. And, um, you know, some people say, wow, isn't that difficult? Isn't that difficult? I, in my line is I either eat what I want, when I want, or I have a singing career. Yeah. And so that choice is easy for me. Okay, good. I like yeah. to hear that answer. It means you're dedicated. Well, you know, well, there, there was that <laughs> moment. you got to feed six. a family. <laughs> yeah, well, there was that moment in those six where I was faced with what else could I do? And, the, it, you know, there were crickets. That's all I heard. Yeah. You know, what else can I do? I'm so glad. No, I really am glad you said that because I don't know. There are a lot of people out there who get so easily discouraged and they give up on their careers. And like, you know what? When people give up, great. Uh, you know, if you couldn't, uh, this I'm going to sound like such a jerk, but you know, if that was your obstacle to pursuing this, then I'm glad you figured it out at this age or at this point in your life and you did something else, you know, but there are some people like you and me who like, well, you obviously are having a great thing here, but like, I've been pushing so hard my whole life to have something so I could be part of this community. And I'm I'm like 46 years old now. And I finally have like a job that really reflects my passion, you know? But uh, nice. it's tough, and there's so many ways to get discouraged. And COVID happens, and then nobody has a job. <laughs> I have one more question for you, but um, I also don't want to miss the opportunity. If you, I got time. We can keep going. It doesn't matter. Well, I mean, the show is only an hour, so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, um, you you brought up your own, fat. You brought up your own family. And I know that you live in Wisconsin. Is that where mm -hmm. your home base is? Yep, outside of Madison. Yeah. And um, this is always a topic that's interesting to us um, when somebody that has a career like yours, where you're, well, you're in Vienna right now and it's Thanksgiving in the US. What was it like to begin to start a family? Uh, what type of support did you have to make it possible? And which companies can you shout out as being particularly particularly helpful in accommodating, oh, I've got to bring my kid to rehearsal today, or can you, you know, play with him, get some stage people to like, you know, play, play a game or something like that, do homework with them or something, you know? Uh, well, you know, first of all, I'm married well. I married up, as I say, you know, when <laughs> my wife and I have known each other from since 1991. We've been dating since 1994 and we got married in 99. She knew what I would do, be, be doing before I did. And that's no, no, no lie, no exaggeration at all. Um, I am always very quick to praise her because, you know, she has enriched my life and then lives of my kids. And um, she's the glue that binds us all. And, um, you know, my dedication to my wife and to my family is uh, a greater point of pride for me than my career in singing. You know, um, I'm... Um, so lucky, you know, I'm, I'm so lucky to have found her early on. And as I said, she, she knew what she was in for, because I think a lot of people have problems when their spouse discovers what being a singer means and they can't take it. Um, my wife and I each have the great ability to be happy alone. I'm happy by myself. I'm, I've always been happy by myself and she's the same way. And that's a huge part of it right there. Um, and it was always my, you know, I was, uh, before I knew what opera was, I knew I wanted to be a, a husband and a father. 
And so when I was faced with this career and thought, oh, I think I'm actually going to make a career like, uh, you know, and being hired for things before we had kids, I asked anyone who would listen and give me advice um, on what it means to have kids, young kids, especially when I'm trying to start a career. And uh, my teacher at Indiana was Giorgio Totsi, who was quite a famous singer, and he had kids and, and was married and had a, the best career you can imagine. Um, and he said, just that you are thinking of that tells me that it'll be okay. Just the, just the sole fact that you are concerned about that, I think you'll be okay. And that was a big part of it. Uh, meaning I always put them first. I always let them know that they were the most important thing in my life and in our lives and my, my wife's life and mine. Um, my wife always took the steps to close the gap. However, it could be done like, oh man, I just got this offer to do this and this, but it means I'm going to be away six of eight months, you know, and she said, well, we'll come that we'll make it work. We'll come. So they'd come to Barcelona, they'll come to Rome, you know, or, or um, I've never, I've never, and it's funny, you know, I embrace any opportunity to give advice to young singers. I have two or three here who have like bent my ear and say, hey, I want to, can we talk about this? And I'm, I love it. I love it. I love it. Because anything that I can do to help, you know, with, with their um, anxieties about doing this thing that I've done, um, I'm happy to do. And so uh, one thing I say is I've never, ever, um regretted saying no to a role in order to be home i've never regret i've turned down some very big things but i know i would have been miserable because that's you know if i'm going to be away for four months at a time without seeing my family i can't that's a deal breaker sorry i just can't do it and some people some companies over the years have just don't understand that they say well why would you want that and i think well that's I don't need to work with you. You know, if that's, if that's your attitude, I don't, you know, if you can't, let's make it work in some other way. And I've never regretted that. I've never regretted spending money to go home to see my family, even for a few days. You asked about a, a, a company. I mean, most companies are just fine with, with families visiting. I would, I, I mean, I would hesitate saying all because I suppose there are a few who are not, but really it's up to the director, the conductor in the rehearsal atmosphere. And it's up to them to say, yeah, bring them on in. Come on in. That, you know, if it were me and we were conducting an, uh, a rehearsal and I hear a baby cry, it's beautiful. But I imagine some people might, might see it as a, a disruption. But I haven't really run into that. But I've always asked and it's always been okay. Um, I was at Covent Garden singing a role, a big role. Um, and uh, my wife was due to have our son. This is 2005. And it was it came to pass that it was going to be a C-section. So it was scheduled. So we knew a date. And as soon as we knew the date, I asked them and they're like, yep, go. So I flew from London to home two days was at the birth of my son, spent time with my three or two and a half year old daughter, not enough time with anybody. And then flew back. And then we were in dress week, you know, but you just make it work. It's easier these days. Um, my kids are 16 and 18 and their my relationship with them is stellar. It could not be better. A big part of this whole thing is that right there. I mean, yeah. and this right here, it's, yeah. it's really amazing how much I can feel at home when I'm, you know, you, I immerse myself as though I'm on in watching a movie, you know, you immerse yourself and you just, you yeah. get in there and you, 
Yeah. So there's your long yeah. answer. No, no, but and God bless the families who, um, you know, maybe were separated by a gig at the start of COVID and couldn't see each other because they were quarantined and Oof. yeah, it must've been horrible. Um, all right. Well, we should end on a, on a fun note. Um, you <laughs> like last month or two months ago, you were on Conan's podcast. How did you get picked for that? It was a simple. Um, so I, I started listening to Conan's uh, podcast in the, uh, the, you know, the 2020, a big lockdown year. And I don't think he started very, very long before that, if at all. And I've always been a fan when he took over for Letterman in like 94, um, you know, I, I've just been a fan and I see his, I'm a Simpsons fan. So I, I see things and I, I can see his, his fingerprints on that. Um, SNL, you catch a glimpse of him on old Farley, uh, Phil Hartman, uh, SNLs. So I've always been a fan. Um, started this news podcast in the lockdown, the great lockdown of 2020. And, um, he the podcast is called Conan O'Brien needs a friend, friend and yeah. he basically takes uh celebrities not me celebrities and um um interviews them just has long form interviews whereas talk shows are only four yeah. five six seven minutes yeah. he gets to it's his own deal so he 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 gets to talk to them for 40 minutes anyway so inside of that podcast spawn he spawned uh, a mini podcast called Conan O'Brien needs a fan. And so fans were encouraged and it's still a thing. It's still going on to go to the website and fill out a form. And, and um, so I thought, wouldn't that be fun? And then I didn't go, I didn't do anything past that. And then my wife, who's always looking ahead <laughs> and knows things that no other human knows said, you should do that. And I said, why? they're not going to talk to me. What, you know, what? And so, okay, I did it. And I remember filling it out. So the, the, the form was, um, I think they asked you five questions and, or five questions you'd ask Conan. And I just tried to be irreverent, you know, and just kind of, uh, strange and odd and funny and refer, you know, referential to the show, you know, to his stuff in the past. Like one of the questions I asked him was, how do you, how do you sleep at night? That's it. And then another one was, um, are you at all concerned with, um, the carbon footprint that, that you were causing to maintain that quaff, yeah. you know, his, his hairdo. <laughs> and so I guess they, they liked it. So they contacted me and said, Hey, we'd be interested in having a, an interview. And I said, great. Okay. So I had an interview with Sean, one of his producers. And um, he asked me those questions that I asked Conan. So he flipped them on me yeah. and you know, they, it's basically a screening process. They're seeing yeah, if, see you if you can hang. Yeah, exactly. See if you're quick, see if you yeah. can actually, carry on a conversation yeah. not like you what you're do. doing here on upper box score not at all you know i'm almost asleep here on the couch. <laughs> you still here oliver scotch. <laughs> yeah oh come on that's life baby um so then well, i remember finishing that interview uh the the first interview and i said to my wife i went upstairs said to my wife i'm gonna be on that show i know it it felt so good and then two days later they said hey we'd like to invite you on the show and so i'm like i did it it was a lot of nerdy fun and it was cool to, you know, talk to him and to his uh, two sidekicks. And they put um, a lot of reverb on your Toreador. They did. I saw that. And <laughs> they did the same thing to his song, yeah. too. Because, you know, I think there were some comments. They played a four minute video on Conan's uh, YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. And some people were like, what's he doing with this voice there? Oh, you know, he can't sing. <laughs> I'm like, uh, I didn't. Uh, 
What am I going to do? It's the same way I've never had, I've never had six packs drawn on me this show. It's not going to happen. Sorry. They are what they are. Yeah. Uh, no, and so funny that like reverb is a signal to the lay audience that now we are listening to music, you know, if there's no reverb. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know why they did that. I didn't ask. I thought it was funny. I immediately noticed because it, it's obvious. Yeah. Um, and then they did the same to his uh, nonsense uh, <laughs> uh, reply. It was, a, it was a lot of fun. And he was genuinely um, a treat. And yeah. when before we were or after we were done recording, he, you know, just complimented me and, and said, oh, just such great, you know, we're not recording now. So this, you know, it's not bullshit. So, uh, and he did, he, I think it's on the recording on the, on the end result where he, he encouraged me. He's like, whenever you're singing, let me know and I'll come. I'm like, yeah. great, but I don't have anything in LA. I never sing in LA. Fantastic. And now I'm going to show the contrast between a real opera star <laughs> who knows what he's doing and a jackass. And it goes something like this. Yeah, the pitch is pretty good. Well, Kyle Kettleson, um, it's been so great to talk to you. Thanks for opening up about Reflux and about uh, your love of Conan O'Brien. Uh, that's a <laughs> private thing. Um, oh, yeah. It's, it's been great to have you on Opera Box Score. Thank you, Oliver. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Anytime you want me, I'll be back. A little bit of sports talk on the show before we get into the two-minute drill. You want that hashtag opera on the ball update, of course. This is oh, the fantasy football league that... Tobias Wright and I are part of through Opera Philadelphia. Here's his update. He says, This week, in a battle between two absolutely decimated fantasy football teams due to injury, Opera Box Score is hanging on by the skin of our teeth and projected to win its second match in three weeks by less than a point. However, our string of bad luck is hopefully coming to an end as we're slowly moving up the ranks from the cellar dwellers to a perfectly mediocre team positioned to do well in the playoffs. <laughs> I just love it when like we're reaching towards mediocrity here. But the best part of this, and this is for our audience, is that George has no effing idea what a hashtag is. <laughs> I really don't. I, I, I do know what fantasy football is, and I, I understand that. I don't understand yeah. the hashtag. Uh, did I also mention that Michigan beat Ohio State on the Saturday after Thanksgiving? <laughs> what about Gilbert and Sullivan? <laughs> what do they do? <laughs> Two-minute drill. It is right now. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, here's everything you need to know about what happened in Wolverine land this week. It's clear that the OBS bump leads to Grammy nominations. Friends of the show Jonathan McAuliffe, Zachary James, and Will Liverman all got the nod. More nominations of non-friends of the show in our hot takes. 
<laughs> Boston Lyric Opera is exploring how operas like Madama Butterfly, which often face criticism for racial and gender stereotyping, could be presented more thoughtfully and inclusively. The Butterfly Process is a series of public conversations between artists and scholars to create a, quote, dialogue about the challenges of presenting traditional operas. Lazy racism alert. When announcing the Connecticut district winners of the Metropolitan Opera Eric and Dominique LaFont competition, formerly known as the National Council Auditions, <laughs> the New England region misspelled the name of one of the winners, tenor Se-young Kim, and posted a picture of a different Asian singer, tenor Yonghyun Park, on their social Ooh. media. The Asian Opera Alliance has called out the post as an example of dehumanizing, all-look-same racism that singers of Asian descent face. Washington National Opera has named friend of the show Frederick Ballantyne as the recipient of this year's Marian Anderson Vocal Award, which includes a $10,000 cash prize and a concert at the Kennedy Center. Michigan Opera Theater has received a $5 million grant from the William Davidson Foundation, the largest single charitable gift in the company's 50-year history. The money will be used for infrastructure improvements to the historic Detroit Opera House, as well as two seasons of artistic programming. Go Gerke! But not to be outdone, the Handel and Haydn Society received a $10 million donation <laughs> in honor of artistic director Harry Christophers. The anonymous gift will provide funding for conductor and soloist fees, orchestra and chorus compensation, and audio and video recording and distribution and touring. Go Harry! Three money stories in a row. You guys didn't give me one of them. <laughs> now I get to give you the bad news. Due to an announcement made by the Bavarian state government in early November regarding the tightening of COVID measures, Bayerische Staatsoper is canceling all productions until December 15th. And the Netherlands has new COVID measures that mean all cultural venues must close at 5 p.m. That means concerts, opera, and ballet blacked out for the next three weeks. Plus, 50 French opera houses and orchestras are asking the government for special consideration in light of recent low attendance. A study found that audiences have been reluctant to return to theaters despite loosening pandemic restrictions in France. Reluctant to return? In other news, bears defecate in heavily forested areas. The English <laughs> national opera is teaming up with Netflix and TikTok stars to create the world's first TikTok. Topera based on the mega hit series Tiger King. TikTokers and other celebrities will recap the story of the gay zookeeper turned political candidate turned inmate set to the music of Carmen. Okay, the production is, get this, aimed at introducing opera to younger audiences. Oh, really? There's the bear defecating in the woods joke. The Nuremberg Opera House is set to undergo major renovations leaving the company in dire need of a temporary space. But their first choice for the interim is a building which was originally designed for Nazi rallies, <laughs> oh my God. causing an instant uproar from historians who argued that the use of the site would compromise education about Nazi ideology and propaganda. Nazis liked opera. The city council is set to make a decision about the use of the site mid-December. In trade news, German opera director Peter Konvinschny has been fired from Nuremberg Opera's new production of Il Trovatore after making what were described as, quote, inappropriate and discriminatory comments during rehearsals. A statement from the theater said it was left with no alternative after the director's remarks were reported. Nuremberg, just 
Yeah. Mezzo-soprano Isabel Leonard is joining the voice faculty at the Manhattan School of Music. Leonard, who holds an honorary doctorate from the institution, said, I am thrilled to be back home at MSM. The artistic director and founder of Against the Grain Theater, Joel Ivani, has been named the next artistic director of Edmonton Opera. And Opera Graz has appointed a new intendant, Ulrich Lenz, replacing Nora Schmidt, who will step down in 2024. On the disabled list, Placido Domingo <laughs> withdrew from a performance of Verdi's La Traviata at the Bolshoi Theater earlier this week due to, quote, indisposition. Exit stage right. The iconic lyricist and composer Stephen Sondheim died last week at the age of 91. Tune in next week for our full tribute. Retired opera and ballet conductor Stephen Kraut, who founded Washington Concert Opera in 1986 and served as music director of the Washington Ballet, has died. He was 77. Greek mezzo-soprano and professor Daphne Evangelatos has died at the age of 78. Her repertoire included over 40 roles, ranging from Purcell to Strauss, performing regularly around the world. German conductor Heinz Panzer has died at 94. The conductor worked with Oper Dortmund for over four decades and helped build a new concert hall for the city, which opened in 02. The Opera House later awarded him a silver rose, get it, for his commitment to the company. And on this day, November 29th, in 1632, it was the baptism of Jean-Baptiste Lully. Baptiste Lully. In 1797, <laughs> it was the birth of Italian composer Gaetano Donizetti. You've heard of him. In 1825, Rossini's Barber Seville became the first opera ever sung in Italian in the U.S. in New York City, making Rossini arguably the most popular composer in the world. In 1877, Thomas Edison's uh, hand-cranked phonograph was unveiled. In 1893, Emma Kalbe made her Met debut in the role of Santuzza. In 1911, Camille Mohan, the amazing Bariton Martin, was born. In 1941, Jan Pierce made his Met debut as Alfredo in La Traviata. We say happy birthday to Carol Farley, born this day in Iowa in 1944. In 1948, <laughs> the first opera ever to be televised also came from the Met. It was Verdi's Otello. In 1983, one for Weston, Olivier mm -hmm. Messiaen's opera Saint-François d'Assisi was premiered in Paris. And on this day in 1997, Anthony Davis' opera, Anthony Davis's opera, Amistad, was premiered at Lyric Opera of Chicago. And that is your two-minute drill. Ta rose de pourpre, ton clair soleil, au juin étincelle enivrée, penche aussi vers moi ta coupe dorée, mon cœur à ta rose est pareil. Sous le mort abri de la feuille ombreuse, monte un soupir de volupté. We are giving away a master's degree in French pronunciation today. Uh, Camille Mohan singing Nel by Gabriel Fauré with pianist Pierre Maillard-Berger. Now that you know the name Camille Mohan, M-A-U-R-A-N-E, go ahead and type it into 
the YouTube search engine to find an entire recital from 1959 of Foray Melody. And in the singing uh, pedagogy world, often the name um, Pierre Bernac is thrown around as the uh, baritone Martin for French pronunciation. But the truth is, and those of us who really know it's Camille Moran, there is no more precise pronouncer of the French language in song than <laughs> Camille Moran. And now you know his name and you're welcome. Great deep dive there. Again, you want to make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher. If you haven't, just favorite the show on Apple Podcasts. Lots to get into on the drill this week. It's a pretty full drill, which is great for us. Obviously, we're going to start with the Grammy uh, classical nominations. We'll, we'll run them down out. really quickly. There are five nominations, and only one of them was controlled in this was uh, recorded in the studio. The other four are live performances. Yeah. Beginning with two from the Met, the Akhenaten, we've talked about many times. And uh, Dialogues of the Carmelites uh, from a HD production that has uh, Karen Cargill, Isabel Leonard, Karita Matila, Aaron Morley, and Adriana Pajanka. Uh, that was from a couple of years ago, I think. But nevertheless, it was released in time for a Grammy nomination. Other things that are live performances are London Symphony Orchestra live series of Janacek, Cunning Little Vixen. Conducted by Simon Rattle and starring Gerald mm-hmm. Finley and Lucy Crowe, an amazing cast for that. Mm-hmm. And finally, one from Finland, uh, Susanna Maiki, Malki conducting Bluebeard's Castle. I'm sure Weston already has it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> with, with Helsinki <laughs> Philharmonic Orchestra and two singers I don't know, Mika Karas and Gilvia Boros. Um, before, we get to the, before we get to the solo vocal, so yeah. Weston. Um, we didn't say who the other one was. It's Little Soldiers. Little Soldiers. <laughs> David T. Little's song. Little Soldiers songs. <laughs> little, little Soldiers songs. No, David T. Little's Soldier songs with our friend of the show, yeah. Jonathan McCulloch, which is the only one that was in a controlled environment. They clearly went into the studio to record the the music before they went to film it. So And, and right, filmed yeah. it. So Weston, does that uh, in-studio recording give it the edge over the other live recordings in your opinion? Uh, Honestly, if it was me, I would say yes. Uh, honestly, this is this is a trend we've been seeing over the last several years of the Grammys, um, and not just in the Grammys, but in opera recording in general. Um, obviously, it's very, very, very expensive to do studio recordings um, anymore, and so in order to have like you know that whole that that experience of something studio recording usually has to be very small scale. Uh, what is kind of odd to me is that like. Um, uh, we went through the entire pandemic and there were lots of very creative, you know, by their very nature, studio recordings that had that went up there that, you mm-hmm. know, didn't get mentioned at all for, uh, you know, uh, various reasons, I'm sure. Um, but it, it is a trend that we're seeing. I do think that if it was me, I would want to encourage studio recordings at every turn just because I think that um, Grammy nominations uh, do give a little bit of a financial bump, a little bit of a financial incentive to uh, people who might want to be producing um, studio recordings. Um 
but it is more and more unusual. I, I I think that Soldier Songs, I would love it to win because David T. Little and uh, Jonathan McCullough are um, are both friends of the show. But I wouldn't be mad if Akhenaten took it because he got some friends of the show. You, that no, I mean, you really <laughs> took the words out of my mouth. Like my heart is with Soldier Songs. But I don't know how Akhenaten does not win this. I mean, I think right, everybody yeah. wants to in, get in on terms the of like train, the you know? impact of the production, and because these are mostly live productions, the the sheer like cultural gravity of mm. what Akhenaten was doing when it came out gives it a lot of momentum. And it would be surprising if it was uh, overturned by someone else in this category. So get this: in the solo vocal category, we have a art song, a new art song recital of American. Uh, composers called Confessions by soprano Laura Strickling and pianist Joy Schreier. She's actually a friend of mine, Laura Strickling. We have a uh, friend of the show, Will Liverman, with pianist Paul Sanchez in Dreams of a New Day. That's when we had Will Liverman on the air. I mean, on our show, mm-hmm. we're talking about right. his recording right. of uh, songs by black composers, mostly black composers. I think there's one Hispanic composer there. Um, there is Vinteriza. <sighs> Performed by Joyce Donato and Yannick Nezé-Sagan on the piano. Now, <laughs> I have nothing against either. I actually like both of these artists. But do we need another Venturiza? And do we need a mezzo-soprano? Just and... put her in Aida. That's what I've been saying. <laughs> we have uh, Jamie Barton in her Jake Heggie recital disc with pianist Matt yeah, Hamovitz. Yeah. It's called Unexpected Shadows. And then the sort of oddball, like out of left field choice is a recording called Mythologies which is music by Danae Zantavlasa, inspired by ancient Greek Greek myths, featuring two singers, Sanjita Kaur and Hilla Plitzman, with Brendan White on piano and various prepared piano sounds and other chambers. There's also a cellist courses. on there somewhere, too. I forget. Uh, yeah, and like that's the uh, super oddball choice. Eru Matsumoto is uh, the cellist. I'm so sorry I have not listened to it yet, and maybe it's amazing, but uh, clearly not going to win. <laughs> well, it certainly has the coolest names of it any does. artists on the Yeah, my, my, my money is on Will Liberman to win this one. The, yeah, the DXV, Danaya Zantavlasa. That's. That's pretty well. All right. Well, you heard the predictions here first. We'll see how that plays out. Uh, okay. So what is going on in Nuremberg? Like, I know what <laughs> happened in Nuremberg. You don't need to remind me of that. Weston, let's tackle the the story of the architecture itself first. And well, then this, we'll get this to, is... Uh, this is very, very wild to me, this whole story. So basically... Um, uh, the Nuremberg Opera House is going to be undergoing this, you know, uh, restoration. Uh, and while it's that those are taking place, um, they they need to go in a different uh, venue, obviously. But in terms of scale and size, someone thought it was a good idea um, to use the unfinished Nazi, Nazi Congress Hall, uh, which is on the site of a lot of uh, of the infamous Nuremberg Nazi rallies which are only kept up as reminders to the German people of how bad things can go when you let fascists have too much control. And honestly, the the fact that this was suggested in Germany, in Nuremberg, no less, uh, is really kind of chilling um, that someone that that no one that that idea wasn't shot down immediately as it came out of someone's mouth. Because you have to remember, like, the cultural uh, awareness of the Holocaust, the terrible things the Nazis did, um, is really enshrined in law. And a lot of and most Germans are very, very proud of the fact that they 
um, are very vigilant and not ever letting that happen again. But um, I believe the argument from the Opera House is that, oh, this building can be sort of redeemed through art or something like that, which is honestly... Mm, I don't think so. This is I, one of those yeah. things that needs to remain empty. It needs to remain, uh, I believe, like the historian, uh, I forget what his name was, quoted in the article, uh, it needs to remain a scar on the landscape because that's what it is, a scar. I, even from a purely architectural standpoint, like the bulk of this building is this enormous outdoor plaza and sort of a right, horseshoe yeah. shape of buildings. Like I don't understand, unless it's supposed to be like an outdoor venue, why it's even suitable I imagine the acoustics are probably okay for an outdoor venue, but honestly, find anywhere else. Honestly, they they should honestly sooner shut down for a few years than uh, than use that that location. I feel pretty safe in saying that. Right, and then of course uh, Peter Konvichny, who's seventy six, also in Nuremberg. <laughs> Man, just like that, uh, aye, he, aye, aye. he he has been problematic in recent years. Yeah. Uh, remember, of course, in 2018, he was uh, fired at Gothenburg Opera. Uh, the quote there from the CEO of Gothenburg said, quote, this is a house where one is allowed to be angry, have conflicts and make mistakes. But there's a point where behavior towards co-workers becomes unacceptable. And he was fired. We have some similar allegations. Those haven't been made public, of course, exactly. Uh, so we, I'm not going to speculate. But, man, Yeah. When we're talking about like insensitivity and discriminatory remarks right next to the story about the potential use of the Nazi building, it is not a good look. I don't know what's going on there, but someone needs to go in and shape these people up. I don't know what's happening. I remember his production of Traviata, which I saw some years ago in Karlsruhe, I think it was. And there was only one person on stage the whole time. And that was that was um, um uh, Violetta. It was conventionally yelling racist things. Apparently, Every, everyone else was either in the wings or was sitting in the audience. Who was? I mean, all the show. like German people that I know and friends that I have are like so embarrassed about what happened in the middle of the 20th century that mm-hmm. any kind of mere soupçon of suggestion that this is like something that is advocated yeah. for is just like no, 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 no. You know? Yeah. So I feel like. Konvichny, Konvichny, um, you know, maybe he doesn't have his head on straight and he is... There's uh, no way. Yeah. Just look, st- just stop pe- t- treating people like that. Pure and simple, man. Break yep. the habit. Uh, some Speaking more habits. of racism. Yeah, right. Speaking of racism. People trying to break habits here. Uh, some- <laughs> I mean, you should, you should all try to um, read the full um, Asian Opera Alliance uh, post. If you can find it. Uh, it's on their Facebook just, page, I believe. Yeah. Right? Um, I mean, I when I first heard about this, like, oh, this is like kind of a microaggression. Maybe they are overreacting. But the more I thought about it, I was like, yeah, you know what? That wouldn't happen to, you know, to white tenors, you know? Yeah, exactly. And th- this, uh, is the, this is also the kind of thing where they, they all, in addition to like, you know, the actual offense itself, um, what are they, uh, the, they, they deleted the post, posted a correction, but didn't, didn't give an apology. Come didn't on. Do any of this, you it's know. not that hard people like check and recheck, get it right. And when you screw up, say what happened. Look, if you're going to put your ignorance out there, you need to, you need to take responsibility for that. Yeah, Absolutely. 
And it's, it's, uh, it, I think that this might be, you know, this is definitely a sign of the sort of the times we're living in where, you know, I, I do think that it's a, a, a very good thing that these kinds of things are being called out where they might have been, you know, ignored or swept under the rug or eye rolled and moved on at. But um, I, I'm just really grateful for these organizations like the um, Asian Opera Alliance, the uh, Black Opera Alliance, you know, for standing up and calling attention to these things. These are the kinds of organizations we need to keep things moving forward. Um, and, uh, I think this whole thing with the, uh, butterfly project is conceptually very, very interesting to me. I don't know exactly, uh, what the conversations are going to cover or what angle they're going to be attacked at, but these are conversations that need to happen when you talk about these operas that have significant, uh, cultural impact in terms of the history of opera, but also have these kind of horrifyingly racist elements to them that need to be reckoned with. And uh, I would love to be uh, to, you know, hear that conversation and um, see what people are thinking, what people are talking about um, in terms of bringing those things into the 21st century or uh, or leaving them behind, as the case may be. Yeah, I mean, I I mean, we have talked about this over and over again, but there are lots of things to consider. One the time that this opera was written in and what what was Puccini's and I guess it Illica was the good libras, I'm not sure. What was their real intention? Were they really fascinated with this culture? Were they trying to represent it in the best way that they could? Uh, not knowing about the word microaggression, not knowing about implicit bias. Right. You know? I mean, uh, it's yeah. pretty obvious that Puccini didn't know what a yeah. microaggression was. <laughs> yeah. And are we taking away by canceling this opera, which, you know, it's not being canceled, clearly. But are we taking away works, uh, work for that mezzo-soprano Yoshida, I forget her full name, the one who, Nelson Yoshida, the one who sings a lot of Suzuki's, like, all of, like it's like her main gig, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, if yeah. we cancel this opera, um, where is she going to go, you know, for her? I mean, it's like me singing the Messiah. If you, if you cancel Handel, that's it. There goes my December Christmas gifts, you know. So. <laughs> right. You and every other singer on the planet. <laughs> well, exactly. I, I think that is what BLO is trying to do here, right, is to kind of thread that needle or provide an alternate option, which is neither presenting Madame Butterfly um, with an all-white cast, nor is it cutting it from the rep entirely, but trying to like, first of all, have a conversation, but not just talk, but put some action behind those words and figure out how do we actually present this work or other works in that category more thoughtfully, more inclusively, and and how possible is that? Yeah, exactly. And I think it's, there's a very interesting conversation we had for, you know, leading your audience towards a more critical appraisal of things like this, where it's not just sort of empty entertainment but you you know you realize the cultural implications of what's on stage but the conversations uh, which I hope are the kind of things they'll talk about in the conversation the conversations are important because there are people who you know like fund the opera who are of a certain age range and who think all of this stuff that we're doing in in younger generations not even my generation but you know like your generation wesson that it's all like <laughs> you mean woke. the tiktok generation yeah it's all woke <laughs> bs you know and they need to, because those are the people that get invited to everything and like, here's your front row seat, sir. You know, right. Exactly. They need to be listening to those conversations and hear from the artists and production staff and scholars, you know, why this is hurtful for some people, you know? Yeah. And give them a, give them a chance to, you know, 
to understand why maybe they need to rethink why they love Madame Butterfly so much. You know? <laughs> Wrapping up the drill with the English National Opera TikTok story. So like I read this article, I did my due diligence. <laughs> I even procured a small child to try and explain it to me. Like I literally didn't know any of these people or what was going on. So would one of you two dear friends like to like talk me through through this well like first I'm... of all george uh if you reach into your pocket you might find a little rectangular device <laughs> it's called a phone a cell phone haha okay i get it yeah <laughs> so but like why why would you do an opera doesn't tiktok have like a time limit uh, it, it does have a time limit it's about i believe it's three minutes now yeah weston uh, stop making fun of me dude i know what yeah. tiktok is he knows what he's he like I'm, I'm so proud of you george uh, the thing is uh as silly and Buscemi, how do you do fellow kids energy this gives me? <laughs> I do think that the spirit of it is in the right place because uh, as you might expect, my TikTok algorithm is very, very uh, music centric. Um, and there are a lot of singers on there uh, doing making very interesting content, uh, content, very relatable content. Um, and there are some, you know, cringy, you know, um, you oh, know, geez. opera companies out there trying a little bit too hard. But there's also some genuinely like really good stuff. And uh, whenever I see something that's going a little bit viral outside of that weird little opera TikTok bubble, um, you look in the comments and it's so many people uh, commenting like, I've never seen opera before, but I could listen to this all day, you know. Uh, and it really is something that has the potential to reach kids. Is Tiger King set to Carmen the best way to do it? I don't know. I am not qualified to answer that question, and I don't think anyone is. Not you, not me, not God. Um, but I am very excited to see if this even shows up on my TikTok uh, homepage. My algorithm is so different than yours. I always get the dancing shirtless cowboy. I was about to say thirst traps. <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds about right. Let us wrap this show up. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Oh my goodness. This is what happens when, when Cummings and Hardgrave aren't here is we end up talking about TikTok. Or maybe <laughs> maybe we do more if they, if they were a good call, bad call. Going to wrap up the show. Start with Oliver Camacho. I'm not sure exactly what day this article came out, um, but I read it on Thanksgiving morning as I was... Uh, you know, doing my morning uh, TikTok scroll, looking for that cowboy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is an article called The Miraculous Sound of Forgiveness, which was written by Matthew O'Coin and uh, written for The Atlantic, which happens to coincide with his opera being produced at the Met, which will be uh, broadcast in HD um, next, by the time you hear this, this coming Saturday. And he has a book coming out. I'm not sure if it's already been it's come out, but it's it's all really well timed. So, congratulations, Matthew Coyne, for or your PR people for making all these things happen simultaneously. But anyway, the article I'm talking about is called um, what's the name of this article? Um, uh, the miraculous sound of forgiveness. So go ahead and put the miraculous sound of forgiveness into your search engine or the Atlantic and Matthew O'Coyne. It is the description, a description of the forgiveness scene in the conclusion of the Marriage of Figaro, and that always like makes the waterworks happen for me. Like whenever I see it, if I see it in a college production, just like pff, crying. 
Uh, but he describes it and tries to analyze why we cry when we hear this music. And he does an amazing job of analyzing it. And I could not help but hear those passages through his description and thus triggering the waterworks. So if you need a good cry and you're a Figaro stan like I am, go ahead and look for this article. Very nice. Weston Williams. Well, uh, the Iron Bowl happened last week, so um, if you'll excuse me, I have to step away from the microphone because it's going to be very loud. Uh, pardon me for just just a second. Oh, God, what is Roll Tide! <laughs> it's just so phenomenally irritating. You're so masculine, Weston. And I, and I really like Weston. Oh, good, he didn't hear me. I think he blew out his microphone on that. Hey, I, my good call is opera-related for once this week. I have a very good friend from London staying who um, hopped out of – he's staying in our apartment. He hopped out of bed one morning wearing very tight, long underwear on his bottom half and very tight turtleneck, long underwear on his top half. So Turtleneck, like, long underwear? Turtleneck, long underwear. And he started prancing around saying like, I'm ready to be in a Philip Glass opera. <laughs> Happy Hanukkah that. to all our listeners as well. That is it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. Our announcer, Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Opera Box Score. And please help us deepen that bench of listeners. Like and share our social media posts. Email us your hot takes, upperboxscore at gmail.com. Drop us a line. Get some OBS merch just for sharing your own hot take. Again, subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher. Favorite the show on Apple Podcasts. Hit up the website, upperboxscore.com for links for the show. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is Weston Williams. For your co-hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hargrave, what the heck? We'll give them a shout-out to. I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about operas. You put the hurt on the Ohio State Buckeyes in your own way. We're back with an all-new show next week when we lay our wreaths at the grave of Stephen Sondheim. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more creative uses for turkey. The meat. Join us 